What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Lawyer You Know podcast. I'm your host, Attorney Peter Tragos, and on this podcast, we break down the trials and cases you care most about so that you can understand how the American criminal and civil justice system works. We try to make sure you understand your rights by answering your questions as, well, a lawyer that you know. So we want to walk you through this process and we can do it together. Make sure you get in the comments or in the chats to ask the questions that have been burning in your minds. And while this is not legal advice, it's always exciting. So buckle up for another episode of The Lawyer You Know. What's up, everybody? We're back at it here. My phone is just exploding with the stuff that's happening in Florida with some tort reform coming down. Lots of people talking about it. Lots of people have been preparing for it. So the world is changing a little bit in Florida when it comes to these injury cases and how they'll be handled. So it's very exciting tonight to recap and discuss an injury case. And while it's not a car accident or premises liability or even a wrongful death case, it is a crash case. There is negligence and there are injuries that are being discussed and duties being breached and causation being discussed. So what is tort? So a tort is negligence. Negligence is a tort. Um, Battery is an intentional tort. Duty breach causation damages. Tortious act. So that's a discussion for another day. We don't have to get into that tonight. Um, But we are going to get into the tort that Gwyneth Paltrow has been accused of committing. It's negligence. So We had a lot of medical testimony today. We had a lot of discussion about brain injuries. And we heard from different specialists, right? A neuroradiologist and a neuropsychologist. One of them I thought was a really great witness. One of them I thought was just okay. Um, There was some really interesting lawyering. Some I thought was pretty good. Some I didn't think was great. So we're going to talk about all that and more. And I think it's going to be a fun discussion. I know I'm going to learn a lot. Hopefully you guys learn a lot. If you have enjoyed the Gwyneth Paltrow um, breakdowns and recaps and Q&As, that's what we do here. We talk about the trial, what happened today. I'm going to play some clips. And then, of course, at the end, I'm going to answer your questions. I will put some comments on the screens as we go. So hit that like button if you haven't already and subscribe if you're here for this trial, if you're here for these videos, and let me know if you're new from the Paltrow trial, because I think it's always interesting to see who joins during what trial, where you're from, if you're from Utah or that area, if you're a big skier, if you're a big Paltrow fan, or you don't like Paltrow very much, I guess, could be another reason. But let's get to day two. Um, We're going to finish first with day one with his former girlfriend, who it was said during somebody else's testimony that she had reason to not be nice to him, but she is, so she has no reason to lie to help him, but you know, whatever you can think what you want about that. I didn't like how she said, well, it's been seven years, so I can't really explain how he's different because that's one of the main reasons she's called. And the BNA witnesses, the before and after witnesses, their goal is to make the jury feel and know and get hit in the face with how this has affected the plaintiff. And so while those answers I didn't think were great, she made it very clear that she felt like their relationship fell apart mostly because of this brain injury, this case, his obsession over it, his treatment, him trying to get better and deal with the injuries he sustained as a result of this crash. On cross, 
there were some good points about he was good at hiding things. You didn't know about this and you didn't know about that from his medical records. You didn't know about the stroke. You didn't know about a lot of the pre-existing conditions. Like he walked into walls. He had vision issues. He adjusted where he was skiing just to one side or only skiing during certain lighting. I thought that was very effective as cross-examination. One of the things I thought was interesting and kind of going to be my first question for you all today. When somebody says, you know, how are you doing right after the accident? And they say, okay. But later that day or even the next day they treat after the adrenaline wears off, they start to feel the pain more, whether it's back injury, broken ribs. I mean, it's clear this guy broke his ribs and had a concussion, it seems like, from this accident. doesn't mean it was Gwyneth Paltrow's fault yet. And it doesn't mean it caused all the lingering brain injury stuff. We'll get to all that. But it's clear he was injured in this crash. And it's not that hard to fathom that somebody would be injured in this way, crashing on the ski slopes. So when somebody says they're okay right after a crash or an accident, how do you, and Mo, this is great. Thank you for this, Mo. I always say I'm okay, even if I'm not. We have had people in insurance cases where they give a recorded statement and the adjuster starts out with, how are you doing today? And they say, I'm okay. And then they get into the injuries and later they say, well, during your recorded statement, you said you were okay just three days after the accident. And I see most of you saying, you know, that's a, yeah, I'm alive is what I'm okay means. Little lamb said, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So you guys kind of feel the same way. And yeah, Devin's law said it takes a while for the injuries to, uh, for the adrenaline to wear off and the injuries to start, um, for you to start feeling the injuries. We've had some, some of that happen recently, um, where one of our kids got hurt and he didn't necessarily know it was hurting him. Um, at the time, but later when the adrenaline wore off, we were able to see and tell what hurt him a little bit more. So I think that's very, very common. And that was used against Sanderson, the plaintiff in this case. But I think it's kind of a, a miss to try to use that because of all the evidence seems pretty clear he did get hurt. Then we had a little bit of discussion about what the doctors could testify to or couldn't testify to. And the judge it seemed like the defense was surprised that the judge limited one of the other doctor testimonies. And this was this morning now. We're, we're to day two. And so they therefore they were like, hey, we might as well try to get him to limit another doctor. And they tried, but it seemed like the judge was not going to limit the second doctor's testimony, who was Dr. Gibby, the first one we talked to today. But we had a little snippet about the media, about court orders, about violations. And it seems like Gwyneth Paltrow's lawyer is going to ho- uh, hold the media's feet to the fire And he said it's been two days and they've already violated the court's order twice. So let's hear a little bit of that discussion and see whether or not you agree with him. But he is definitely, you know, protecting his client, um, fighting to make sure that we're not having a Lori Vallow situation here where the camera's just pointed on her for everybody to, to look at what she's doing and react to every facial expression and try to find something wrong with everything she's doing. Let's listen to what he said. Uh, Mr. Owens. Well, thank you, uh, the camera that I referenced uh, was a violation of the decorum order. That's the second violation in two days. Directly, still photographer, directly on my client's face, already transmitted uh, nationally. So I'm mad. Uh, the decorum order we spent a lot of time on. It's the court's order. People are subject to criminal sanction. And uh, I, I want it to stop. I don't want to have to be the one raising it. I want them to comply. He is right. That shouldn't be something that he has to do over and over again to make sure other people are complying with court orders. He's got enough to do trying this case. I know a lot of you don't like his demeanor, and that's fine. Um, I think that people are entitled to 
not like a lawyer's style or even, you know, how Gwyneth Paltrow is sitting or acting at council table. That's all fine. But he is doing his job here. And I don't have a problem with him getting upset about it and saying, I don't want to have to be the one to hold them accountable. Let's hear what the judge says. The camera's been removed. Um, the, as far as what's going on in the parking lot, that's I'm not, I'm not going to conflate that with this photographer. Who's People are following her, shoving cameras in her face, taking pictures of her in the parking lot as well. He was complaining about um, the, the, the uh, what's going on in the parking lot is uh, uh, Tanya's has worked with your staff in determining how to handle the parking lot transitions. And I think that's been smoothed out in terms of violation of the court's decorum order and, and have the camera pointing where it's not. Mo, we can already hear the coughing. Can already hear it. It's tough. It's a tough one for me as well. And especially when he's not even the one asking questions and you just hear that cough in the background. Not supposed to be pointing. I mean, essentially, cameras are supposed to follow the microphone. This is a, what, what the court has permitted is media coverage of the proceeding, not of the individuals who aren't participating in the proceeding when they're not participating. So if you're speaking into a microphone, you can expect that an image may be captured. If you're not speaking into a microphone, you shouldn't, you should not be expecting that an image to be captured. Um, and I do, I do see this as a violation and I've asked uh, that that the that the uh, reporter be told that it, uh, this is now interrupting our proceedings. It's now interfering with our proceedings, having to deal with these issues. And if it happens again, the offending reporter will be asked to leave. So the judge basically agrees, says we're not going to have that, um, and I think he does the right thing there. Uh, okay, so Dr. Gibby, neuroradiologist, he's a professor, differentiates brain injuries, reads brain MRIs all the time. Um, he talks about all sorts of uh, things that can affect the brain injury, age, pre-existing conditions. Um, you know, he doesn't know what an eggshell plaintiff meant, which I thought was very interesting. The other doctor like defines it for us. Uh, and he doesn't necessarily give the lawyer the answer he's looking for when they start talking about an eggshell uh, plaintiff. But he does go through the x-rays and the MRIs because he, he is a radiologist. If you don't know what a radiologist does, they read CAT scans, MRIs, x-rays. That's what they do. Um, and he shows us where the rib fractures are on the scans, which is great for you to actually see that for juries to see objective evidence, not just a subjective complaint uh, from the client, because so much of this trial is based off the subjective complaints of the client, which we will get to more of that later. And then he gives them a very big and important piece of evidence. I think this is great that he does this. I think it can be done. Some of you on Twitter, if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Tragos Law, right here is my uh, Twitter and Instagram handle. Give us a follow on there. But a lot of you thought this was kind of bogus, that he can't um, explain how injuries occurred based on what those injuries are. We're going to listen to him do that together. Talk about why it's so important for a plaintiff and talk about why I think it actually is legitimate. But if the jury doesn't buy it, then it doesn't matter. And so that's what I'm going to ask you. Do you think this is legitimate? Do you think there are ways that doctors can explain how injuries happened, even though they weren't there? But looking at an x-ray or an MRI or things like that, or even just looking at pictures of bruising or something like that, do you think there are ways that they can explain, looking at that, how an injury is more likely to have occurred? Debris as a result of them. Um, do the rib fractures um, indicate that uh, Dr. Sanderson or Terry Sanderson was hit from the rear and from the side, and why? So I think that's you know one of the the really the core questions of this case. Um, it doesn't seem to be any dispute that there was a collision. Um, it does uh, doesn't seem to be any dispute that there were injuries. That Dr. Sanderson experienced enough trauma to break ribs and cause a.
He's right. There's no dispute that there was a collision and that there were injuries. Concussion. Um, then the question is, was this something that he caused or the defendant caused? And based upon my analysis of the x-rays and the reports from uh, witness, the witness, Craig, who was there, I think it's very unlikely that this would have been caused by Terry running into uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, first of all, when you're skiing. That's the question for the jury. Who ran into who? That's the first question I should say. And then what damages did it cause? But if he's able to answer that question for the jury, that's incredibly important. Because Mr. Ramon testified, and that's fine. Each uh, party is going to testify. The jury's going to have to figure out who they believe. But if a doctor says there's objective evidence, regardless of what anybody saw, but the way the ribs broke, the way the head hit, he had to have been hit from behind or the side or whatever he's going to explain, but he did not run into somebody else. That's what he says here. Your knees would be bent. Your arms would. Maybe we should approach for this one. Sure. So he objects, probably saying that he's testifying to the ultimate issue, which I think is a good argument, but the judge overrules it because he is showing objective evidence. And what does that objective evidence and those objective findings tell him about what the mechanism of the injury is? Uh, Dr. Gibby, what's your opinion as to how this crash, these injuries were caused? I think based on the uh, stated testimony of of the defendant, uh, Craig Ramon, who was the only eyewitness, and based upon the pattern of injuries that are present here, um, what I believe happened is that he was struck from the left side, and that uh, forced him into the ground. It's it's also been the testimony here that uh, Ms. Paltrow was on top of him at some point. So the combined weight of the two individuals slamming into the ground caused the fracture and the head injury. And I don't think it would be plausible that if he were running into her, that he would have broken the ribs on the side of his chest. He likely would have had his arms extended. He would have protected himself. He would have had knees, arms, etc., in front of his chest. And so um, he might have had other injuries, a broken leg or an arm or wrist or something like that. But uh, in terms of a frontal collision, had he uh, run into Ms. Paltrow, I don't think he would have had these types of injuries. And So somebody said, yes, he can, but not 100%. So he's not saying 100%. He's saying the most plausible explanation. This is not beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the greater weight of the evidence. So this is very important when the burden is so much lower in a civil case than it is in a criminal case. So I think he does a good job of explaining that. We will get to cross about how his testimony may differ or disagree with some other people's explanation of how exactly the collision occurred. But I think he gives some pretty good objective evidence of if you're running into somebody, you do something. You you either put your hands out, whatever. He wouldn't have broken his ribs if he landed on top of her. I'm not so sure if I believe that. He wouldn't have hit his head on the ground and shaken up and had a concussion if he would have landed on top of her. Are we sure? Couldn't he have gone like hit her and then gone over the top of her and hit his head? But again, that stuff can come out on cross. But as far as his explanation during his discovery, I mean, sorry, during his direct examination, I think it's a pretty good explanation to show that this was more likely than not the Gwyneth Paltrow running into the back of Terry Sanderson. Now, you guys let me know. Do you buy it or do you not? Because that's the important question. Then he gets asked about some of the defense experts. And I will say the plaintiff experts in this case had no problem taking shots at the defense and going hard for the plaintiff. And here is when he's asked, people are asking, was she hurt? She said she hurt her knee a little bit. She had a prior knee problem. She didn't ski that day. No broken bones, no concussion, nothing like that. A lot of people saying, no, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Okay. Okay. 
All right. So let's listen to what he says now about the defense experts and their testimony. By all accounts, a gregarious sort of outgoing person. Um, this event happens and he has a very abrupt change of personality of his functioning. And so I don't think you can claim that the slow, well, actually very stable you know, over the decade previous with his normal pressure hydrocephalus, whatever that was, that's NPH. I was, I was looking for that yesterday. They said it a million times today. We're still going to call it NPH. Symptoms post-accident. Now, we all age. We all uh, get symptoms over time. And, uh, you know, could the normal pressure hydrocephalus affect him at some point in his life? Absolutely. Um, but so could other, other problems related to aging. Okay. Uh, Dr. Stephen Edgley, medical doctor, <coughs> indicates in his report that... Uh, these are defense experts. Uh, none of plaintiff's medical records support his claims that per perceived symptoms of cognitive decline are related to the ski collision. How do you respond to the defense's expert on that? Well, obviously, the defense expert has a, you know, um, he's, he's paid to give a certain storyline. Uh, so this is coming from, first off, the defense expert is paid to give a, for a certain storyline. I agree with him. Uh, most defense experts are, but what's interesting is he's not a treating physician. So a lot of times if my treating physicians in cases will say that my treating physician, what's their job? They're there to help the client. They're the ones actually performing surgery. They're reading the MRI. They have no idea who my client is. They get these MRIs sent to them and they're reading the MRI. It doesn't matter who this person is. So they're more objective because they're a treater. But what's funny is this guy's calling out the defense expert while he himself is an expert. And we find out that he charged $2,500 to do an examination of the plaintiff and he charges $5,000 a day to testify. Now, is that an exorbitant amount of money? I, I Maybe I shouldn't have said it that way because yes, it's a lot of money, but it's absolutely in line and maybe even a little low with what some experts charge. But I do like that, you know, he's willing to take some shots at defense experts. They're paid to say a certain thing. I think the record is very clear that he had changes in his behavior in his interpersonal relationships and uh, in his functioning. So I'm not sure how this doctor could claim that there were no symptoms related to the accident. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that's wishful thinking. Uh, Dr. Robert Hesch, spelled H-O-E-S-C-H, indicates that Terry's uh, neurological, persisting neurological conditions or symptoms uh, that he reports since the ski crash are likely attributable to pre-existing health conditions. How do you respond to Dr. Hesch? Well, again, um, he wasn't suffering from those pre-existing health conditions before the accident. Uh, there are some things in the medical record. He had a, an embolic event to his right eye, so he lost most of the vision in his eye. So he did have some visual changes. He had some age-related hearing loss, which in the medical record was described as mild. He was using hearing aids, not uncommon at that age. He had a history of... So he basically goes through, disagrees with most of the defense experts, explains it away, which I think was pretty effective um, for the plaintiff to be able to do that. But again, at the end, they talk about eggshell plaintiff. He said, never heard of it. I don't know how that's possible if you work in the legal field or the medical legal field. Um, and then he asked, was Terry more susceptible to this brain injury? And I think they want the answer to be yes. I think the plaintiff is having kind of a twofold argument. And what do you guys buy more? That he had no pre-existing conditions or that those pre-existing conditions made him an eggshell plaintiff? Because in order to be an eggshell plaintiff, you have to prove that you had some kind of condition that made you more susceptible to the injury caused by a traumatic event. So this NPH and the fogginess and whatever he was dealing with before put his brain in a state 
that if it was going to get rattled, it would be hurt worse than your brain or my brain. Maybe not your brain, but anybody's brain that doesn't have some kind of pre-existing condition. He asks this doctor that straight up, and this doctor says, ah, it was a big collision. I think anybody would have been hurt, which is a good answer because that still means Sanderson would have gotten hurt. But I think it was pretty clear the lawyer wanted him to answer a different way. Then we started out on cross, okay? And we started out on cross on a theme the defendants are going to go with. It may be uncomfortable. It may make you hate lawyers. And when I think about this, I think we're going to hear and see a common theme for defense lawyers in this case. To trash this plaintiff and make him seem like a bad guy because he has an estranged relationship with one of his daughters. And we're going to listen to this line of questioning. To make him seem like the most unhealthy person in the world. My last trial that I had, they went through, I mean, I think it was 80 comorbidities that my client had, including like redness of the legs. And he was paralyzed. They wanted to make it seem like he was going to die real quick. So don't give him any future medical bills. It didn't work. But they try that all the time. And then they will go through thousands of pages of medical records to pull out one word here or one phrase there. Like, I'm starting to feel a little bit old. There could be a million reasons for that, but they are trying to use it to say he couldn't possibly have a brain injury. He must've had it before because he was starting to feel old at 69 years old and it's over after 69. Once you hit 70. So that's very common, but I will say they do have a lot to work with in this case. It seems like he did have some preexisting issues, but even if, a, even if a person doesn't, the defense will dig in and find something to make it seem like this person was already hurt. Uh, especially back injuries. It's like, oh, he said his back hurt one time. It's like, whose back hasn't hurt one time? It's actually crazy when we look through some clients' records and they literally have never complained of back or neck pain. We're like, whoa, you've never slept wrong or like worked out and hurt your back? And some of them are just like, no. But usually somebody at some point has had a back or neck ache just from sleeping wrong. So let's listen to the beginning of Cross here. Uh, maybe okay. you can refresh my sure. memory. The one was, I think the, the one that I recall Sorry. Being, uh, read some of their testimony. Is that correct? Talking about his daughters. And uh, do you recall reading? Yes. Let's uh, start with this. This, I don't want to call him young. He's probably like my age, but I think his disposition is really great. I really enjoy him listening. I mean, asking questions. I think he listens to the answers. I think he's structured. I think he has the depot sites ready. He seems to stay on task. He doesn't argue a lot. He doesn't ask a lot of objectionable questions, so he's not getting interrupted a ton. And when he does, he tries to fix the answer or he makes a cogent argument that he's thought of why I should be able to ask this question and why it's admissible and why it's appropriate. I really enjoy his cross-examinations. I don't know how you guys feel. Let me know. Give him a rating, one to 10. I enjoy his cross-examination. I don't know his name. I don't remember most of the lawyers' names here. About Jenny Sanderson, one of his daughters. Um. I, I I don't remember the names exactly, but I'm okay. you can refresh my sure. memory. The one was, I think the, the one that... A lot of people agree and are giving him high scores. I, I agree with that. I really enjoy it. I recall reading was the oldest daughter that had a granddaughter that had just graduated from high school. And then there was another one that... Um, I, so there were only two, two depositions of the two. Yeah. So maybe you can tell me the names and I will... Sure. Well, I'll just ask you things that okay, maybe sure. came up in some of the others. So Jenny... Uh, the youngest, um, she testified that she did not feel loved or nurtured by her father growing up. Did you read about that? I, I didn't read her deposition then because I didn't. So this is the age old problem of the plaintiff's counsel, not providing everything to an expert. And we hear that multiple times. This guy wasn't given, he's the radiologist and he wasn't given the prior scans. 
before his depo. So they limited his testimony that he couldn't testify about them. That's a problem. Plaintiff's counsel should have provided those scans. Plaintiff's counsel provided the depots of two of the daughters, so everything sounded great, but they didn't provide the depo of the daughter where everything didn't sound great. So now he's kind of being surprised, and some of his uh, discussion about Terry Sanderson before these issues is being dismantled a bit by this third daughter that the defense, and it's not like it was a surprise. The defense even said in their opening they were going to talk about what that third daughter felt and knew and said. So now this um, witness, I don't want to say is blindsided, but he didn't know about this and he didn't review these depots. So maybe there's going to be an issue with his testimony being incomplete. Not see any of that, uh, of that testimony. And, and this may have been discussed in some of the other daughters' depositions. So I'll just keep reading in case sure. you, you read, uh, read about any of these other statements. Uh, there's also testimony that Mr. Sanderson was domineering and emotionally and verbally abusive to Jenny and her mother, Tana. This is an opportunity for this defense attorney to say these things over and over again because he asks the next witness the same thing to begin cross. So you get to say this in front of the jury. So the jury hears that a daughter said this about the plaintiff. Recall reading anything about that? No, I, I do recall some testimony about uh, him being angry with the man that was uh, having an affair with his wife and that that was atypical for him. I think he was, you know, punching him or something, but that was listed as very atypical in Terry's behavior. Okay. What about, uh, did you hear any testimony about Mr. Sanderson becoming frustrated if his expectations weren't met and this is referring to his children? Uh, no, I don't recall that. What about testimony that he has always been easily frustrated and quick to anger? It's not great um, when you're saying that the reason you get angry so quickly is now because of this accident, and this brain injury. It's not great to have that stuff prior. And like I said, sometimes they pick out just one line. Seems like there's a lot more than that in this deposition. Contradicted by other testimony by the daughter, but uh, but no, I was not aware of that testimony. Okay, what about testimony that his frustration was visible in his body language and in the way he would talk? No, uh, like I said, I don't think I've read this deposition. Um, what about testimony that he did not speak with one of his daughters, Jenny, for 13 years? Not aware of that. Um, what about testimony that Mr. Sanderson is controlling and relentlessly tries to mold Jenny to be a certain way? Yeah, again, I haven't had any of the testimony from Jenny. So okay. I, I was not given that deposition. Well, some some of these things may have been addressed by the daughters, sure. as you mentioned with the... the um... So very interesting. He gets all that in before the lunch break. Um, a lot of negative things coming out from his estranged daughter. After lunch, we get into the broken ribs from a glancing blow to the side, which he said in his deposition, but now he's saying it was a direct hit and a direct hit with the ground and his head must have hit the ground, but it wasn't an icy day. It was compact enough to ski, but not ice, Mr. Ramon said. Uh, then he talks about how, you know, this NPH, how he was prescribed treatment in the past, and even this guy agreed that some treatment might be helpful. Therefore, he had this issue. And again, both sides are kind of arguing he had pre-existing conditions, but he didn't. The pre-existing conditions made him a eggshell plaintiff, but no, he wasn't an eggshell plaintiff. So it's kind of going back and forth and a jury has to decipher it. That's why a plaintiff's lawyer, the defense lawyer can muddy the waters, make things confusing. So a jury is like, I don't really know what was proven, but a plaintiff's lawyer has to be, has to simplify the case. Pick a, pick a theory, pick a strategy. Is he an eggshell plaintiff or is he not? I just hit my wires, making sure I didn't unplug it. Is he an eggshell plaintiff or is he not? And if he is, then focus on that and use that evidence that the defense think is their evidence and use it as your evidence. But you got to prepare everybody for that. Got to tell the doctors, you're going to ask them about that prior stuff. You're going to show them the prior um, scans. So you talk about it. Say, so doctor, we need to talk about his pre-existing condition that makes him an eggshell plaintiff. 
he does have a pre-existing condition, right? His brain is not like a healthy brain. His brain is more susceptible to injuries from trauma, right? Because of this NPH. He was asymptomatic with this NPH before, right? But it's still there. And if your brain gets shaken up with NPH, you're more likely to have severe symptoms, right? Right. 90% of people get better after a concussion or a mild traumatic brain injury, right? Right. But 10% of people don't, right? Right. And if you have NPH, are you more likely to be in that 10% of people versus the 90% of people? Yes. Does Terry Sanderson have NPH? Yes. Is that why he ended up in the 10% of people instead of 90% of people? Very likely, as far as the research shows. You pick that strategy. You don't talk about that he had no problems before, and it seems like they're kind of tiptoeing or riding the fence on both of those is, is what I'm seeing. Maybe you guys are differentiating from that. But that's how I would have, would have attacked it more. We we just had a trial with a pre-existing condition that we had to do this with. And it was a it was a asymptomatic, no pain at all, ever. And then the accident made it symptomatic. But he had an x-ray done a long time ago for something else, not even pain. And it showed that there were still some issues there. So it's, it's very different. And you got to pick a theory and go with it and simplify it so the jury is only thinking one thing. You don't want the jury to have to wade in all these different waters to try to figure out your story and what these doctors are actually talking about. So uh, they talk a little bit about the fMRI versus the MRI. What is a functional MRI? It's an MRI where the client's doing something. And he also admits that the fMRI is kind of an ancillary additional piece of evidence, or, or I should say, um, uh, medical documentation, but the MRI is actually more important. He talked about how much he was getting paid. Um, they had a bunch of argument about the read versus reviewing the scans. Every radiologist would rather review the scans, but in this case, he didn't review the scans. He only reviewed the read. So in the past, it sounds like he's saying doing the read does, isn't helpful with which a lot of radiologists say they want to read it with their own eyes because nobody's as smart as them. Um, and they may be right because they are very smart but they don't trust somebody else's read for the most part. But here he had to try to act like that read was probably okay. Um, there was an interesting discussion here, and I think that this is going to come up more in the future. So I do want to play it for you here. It's after the lunch break. So we're about here. Uh, I say, I have read the record of many people diagnosed him. In fact, I think your own neuropsychologist didn't examine him. They just did a review of records to make their to, to make their report. So I'm not sure where this is going. Right, sir, I, I don't think you know anything about why or why not our, our um, experts were able to, uh, whether they evaluated Mr. Sampson. Is that correct? You don't know. So this was the only time James got, I see you guys saying his name is James, got a little flustered, but he held it together and he was right. He's like, sir, you don't know anything about why our experts didn't evaluate him. And we know from the next witness that he's going to damn his experts, the defense experts, for not evaluating him and say it's unethical, which, again, somebody asked, is this going to be longer than the Johnny Depp trial? And no. Um, uh, Jerome asked, no, this is supposed to only last eight days. Plaintiff's supposed to rest on Friday. We'll talk a little bit about who's getting called when because the fireworks are about to start, I think. Um, but there was a lot of depth overlap with that neuropsychologist, and he talks about how it's unethical to give these opinions without evaluating the person. And there's absolutely argument as to why did the defense expert not evaluate the plaintiff? And we'll get more of it, more argument of it later, but they have this interesting little snappy exchange here. Anything about that? I do know they didn't examine him. No, you don't know why. No, I don't know why. Right. Could be that plaintiff didn't want him, didn't want them to evaluate them. Is that correct? I, I wasn't there. I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. Okay, thank you. So um, he's like, yeah, you don't know. Exactly. So shut your mouth. <laughs> That's what I felt like you wanted to say. Yeah. Um, and then I want to show you this here. 
because this is going to be something for us to remember, right? And I hope the jury remembers it too. So he's going to come down from the stand and there are green arrows pointing to the MRI. Jurors, here's another thing I'll tell you about jurors. We have cases where MRIs are really important. We have radiologists that get paid a lot of money. They go to school for a long time. They're very smart. They read it. They tell us what it shows. But the jurors don't believe anything as much as they believe their own eyes and their own ears. So they want to look at that MRI and see if they can see what they think is a difference or an injury on the MRI. So right here, he's going to show him this MRI with green arrows pointing to what he thinks is an effect and an injury caused by the about these prior scans because I am going to guess that the prior scans are going to show the exact same issues that are on this MRI that we're seeing post-accident that he is attributing to the ski accident. Uh, I'm not sure it's, what you were talking this, this image. Yes, correct. There you go. Yeah, so... This image is, I think, what you provided to me of the MRI that was taken in 2017. This is not the one you took, is that right? Correct. And you looked at it, and it's after the collision, and you pointed in the three narrows to various parts of the brain that you see as abnormalities that might be related to the concussion. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And uh, if you, what you, um, I think that's actually, that's actually enough. Probably we can we can leave it at that. Okay. Thank you. And John asked this question: Why did he stop it so quickly after this brain scan? Because he locked in the fact that this doctor attributes those, that imaging and those abnormalities on that imaging to this accident. And we'll listen to it again here to answer John's questions. Is that correct? To various parts of the brain. That, and you looked at it and it's after the collision and you pointed in those green arrows to various parts of the brain that you see as abnormalities that might be related to the concussion. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Abnormalities that might be related to the concussion, the concussion sustained in the ski accident. And that's the answer he wanted. So he did the right thing. He didn't ask one too many questions. He went and sat down and he got exactly what he needed out of this witness. And the experts, you don't want to go too long with them, especially about the medicine. The next witness is Dr. Goldstein. And my first thought when he took the stand was no hair jokes. So we're not going to get any hair jokes here, okay? Do you think his hair is real? That's that's one of the questions I have because, wow, what a head of hair. I've, I haven't seen a lot like that. Um, but we're not going to make any jokes about it. Uh, and I actually thought, I said I thought one witness was amazing and one witness was, eh, fine. I thought Dr. Goldstein was an absolutely incredible witness. He did not stand too hard for the plaintiff. He corrected lawyers when they used... Um, I want to say improper, but uh, not specific enough enough wording or wording that was not the perfect word with the perfect definition for what he was trying to describe. When documents or exhibits were trying to be entered from his report, he wanted to make sure they were entered properly so people could understand that it wasn't just numbers, but those numbers mean things. I, I, I literally wrote this expert's name down. That's it's the first time I've done it for any trial that we've covered, just in case you were wondering. Never have I ever written down an expert's name that I may call if I need a neuropsychologist in the future. I thought this guy was exceptional. Some people may disagree with me, but 
just just somebody I've talked to a lot of neuropsychologists. Some of them have a really difficult time of explaining this to a jury. And some of them say things where I just think they take it a little too far. I'm like, even that sounds tough for me. If I, it doesn't pass the test of me, a plaintiff's lawyer, it's probably not going to convince a jury. Okay. Tons of experience, 40 years, wrote the book on stuff. People use his testing. Uh, he goes above and beyond to explain how important meeting the client is, how it's um, you know, improper and unethical to do it without it. Then, here's where I said we're going to come back to that. The lawyer starts asking him about a rule that allows one party to ask the court to compel a witness to be evaluated by the other side's doctor. We know about this. We talked about it in the Depp case. It was an improper question. It gets objected to, and the judge must have sustained it at sidebar because we didn't hear any more about that. And it's improper to ask an expert witness about rules that allow you to compel um, an independent medical examination. But the jury heard it. They went through all the things in the record that make this doctor think that he suffered a brain injury, like fog, loss of consciousness. He was disoriented. Um, he saw him like four years after the accident. So he did a really good job of saying, I'm not saying that it happened this way. He had no opinions on what caused this brain injury, but just on the self-reported effects of what Terry Sanderson said happened that day, which if you think about it and you cut it up, what does that actually mean? We'll talk about that a little bit more. The rule of thumb is about two years out. You probably can compensate and learn how to live life better, but recovery of the brain probably won't happen. The brain does not heal itself. And he said, I don't call self-reported measures test. When asked about malingering, he said, no, he was 100% trying to be honest. He was not seeking secondary gain. He was not telling me things just to make money. Again, I thought all that was pretty good. Then he explains how the jury should not leave their common sense at the door. So let's listen to a little bit of that. People usually love that. They love when people tell them that because they're like, oh, good, 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 because I have common sense, so I want to use it. But they really, what they really mean is how common sense is going to help you agree with what I'm saying. That's really what they mean. I am making common sense, so I want you to agree with me. Based on your review, the things you just told us about, what are the three most important things about this case that stuck out to you? Sure, and I, and I think I suggested to you that because uh, human beings are complicated and lots of information comes at jurors, that when I testify, I like the jury to remember three things. And now, now you get in my secret. I want the jury to think I'm smart, not I'm dumb. And, and so tell me what those three things are that you think are important for them to understand. Sure. And the first one involves common sense. Okay. Not to leave your common sense at the door because experts are offering all of these opinions. Yeah. Um, Mr. Sanderson may have had pre-existing issues with his health, with his mood, with his brain, but there was, based on the records, an acute adverse change in his behavioral and emotional function. An acute, acute is very important because degenerative or chronic or things that are long-term or last a long time or take a long time, those are things that happen with aging, the natural process, but acute usually happens from a traumatic event or an individual event. So he says that, acute, adverse effects. But what he says is from the record and the reports and what people say, because at the end of the day, we have to rely on that. 
And initially, it appeared to be a consequence of his physical injuries. He was in pain and, and quite a lot of pain. But over time, it became apparent that it was more than just him being disrupted uh, by pain. And that were it not for that particular accident, uh, the life he was living in the six months to a year before, that I think the jury has heard about, would be the life he would continue to be living. So there was an acute change, not something slow and insidious over time, characteristic of Alzheimer's or white matter disease or, or any other progressive illness in the brain. Uh, that's one. What is acute? Uh, happens very quickly. Okay. What's number two? Uh, number two is that these pre-existing vulnerabilities he had uh, don't explain the acute change and now the long-term change in his behavior and and functioning. Uh, and again, we'll we'll talk more about that. But I wanted to, I wanted to hit that common sense discussion. Um, he also says he's not an accident reconstructionist. Another reason why I like this witness: he stays in his lane. He's not trying to explain things that he doesn't have expertise on. Uh, he does a great job as well of describing kind of the different. Uh, mild, medium, moderate, severe brain injuries, I think it's important to have somebody explain that to a jury so they can understand the difference. And that's what I said. You don't want to push it too hard or make it seem like you're saying they're brain dead when they have a mild traumatic brain injury. It's still a brain injury, but mild is how he can look over there and, and look and seem the way that you see him. Now, what's interesting is we don't see Sanderson's table very often throughout this trial. And we're going to find out he wasn't in here for this testimony. I don't know if he was in here for the other testimony to hear what his daughter is saying about him. And we'll we'll talk about why when we get there. But first, let's hear about brain injuries. We've heard the term uh, post-concussion syndrome. Yeah. Is that also uh, one of the uh, uh, words or expressions that's used to express uh, uh, mild traumatic brain injury? Yes, a mild traumatic brain injury is the equivalent of concussion. If your brain injury is more severe, meaning you have a bleed, you're unconscious for longer periods of time. We typically don't refer to that as a concussion. We refer to that as, as a moderate to severe brain injury. In, in your experience, are people required to have loss of consciousness to have uh, a mild brain injury or a post-concussion syndrome? No. It's not just my experience. Yeah. It's the standard in the field. Okay, so you've studied this, and that's something you know personally. I know it from my clinical practice. I know it from my training. I know it from my qualifications, which are, I think, the three requirements for me to sit here on the stand. I think that's a good answer, personally. And I think that helps the jury understand what we're talking about. We talked a lot about, um, you know, how he was acting before, how he's acting after. Again, that just coming from BNA witnesses, family members, friends, and his own self-reporting. Then he says something that, again, I think he was being honest, but if we're going to hear more cross-examination tomorrow of this, or uh, wait, no, I think we're, we're done with this witness, right? Yeah, we finished this witness. So I, I'm making these notes in real time, and I'm shocked that they didn't hammer this more on cross. This is something I would have hammered on cross. He says that the neuropsych testing won't show Terry Sanderson's issues. So I would have gotten up and said, you're king of the testing, right? You wrote the test. You did the test. Neuropsych testing, right? None, And it shows none of his issues, right? You agree with that. None of your testing shows it. All of your expertise, all of your knowledge on all of this testing shows none of his issues. Because he was saying, you know, the frontal lobe, um, you know, behavioral changes, temper, you know, agitation, things like that are what his changes mainly are, not what we can test, which is like how intelligent you are and how you take actual tests. So all we have to go on, and I would have hammered this, is all we have to go on is the subjective complaints of the plaintiff. Defense lawyers do that all the time. Some cases, then, when they do that, I absolutely love it. If I've got a good plaintiff, I want them to hammer that home. So in order for any of what you're testifying to here today to be true or to be effective or to be, you know, help this jury at all, they got to believe what the plaintiff says, right? Yes. 
bring it all, bring it all on me. It's this person's case. This case is all about the client. If the jury believes the client, the client will win. Now, bad lawyers can screw up cases sometimes. Good lawyers can make cases a little bit better, but it's about the client. The client has to be believable because in these injury cases, the only way to determine when the pain started, when the change in personality, when your life changed and how your life changed, you have to believe the self-reporting of the client. We can't just believe everybody's lying, but we also can't just believe everything everybody says. So he hammered home the fact that that's what it's going to come down to. And that's why I'm looking forward to Terry Sanderson taking the stand. And I think he is going to win or lose his case from the stand. Is he going to be believable? Now, what can we expect from his testimony? That's next. They talk about how Terry might not testify like you'd expect because of this brain injury. So what might his testimony look like? Well, let's listen to what the good doctor says. Reports compared to a normative sample. And I want to ask you, um, we're going to have Terry in here after tomorrow. In the testify. I'd like you to talk to the jury about what, this is the, I'm going to end with this, the kind of things we might expect to see. And I'm just going to ask you about some of these things. I'll ask you to define some for the jury because they won't know what it means. Okay. Uh, some of them won't. Uh, and then tell me if we're going to see that with Terry's testimony and why. Perseveration. First of all, what is perseveration? So I don't mean to be unresponsive, but you use the word see. What you will see is a, a, a good looking gentleman of 76 years of age. He will be dressed appropriately. His hygiene will be good. Uh, he will present himself as very normal. Uh, he clearly, from some of the things he will say, it will reflect an intelligent person. That's what you. I like that he did that. Be specific. What will you see? He'll look completely normal. And he helps the plaintiff's lawyer, even if the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't ask the right question, which I love that. That's a great expert. But now, what are we going to hear? We'll see. What you will hear is a challenge in a variety of ways in his, his ability to stay on task, to answer the questions, not because he's evasive, but because he's obsessive in his thinking. To come to your question, perseveration means you go over something again and again and again, and Terry will tell you that. I, I, I just feel like I have to tell you again, even though you, you tell him, I got it. You already told me three times. Um, he, he, it's not enough for him. Inappropriate repetition. Correct. Inappropriate repetition. Inability to take the perspective of the other person and appreciate, they already got this. I can move on. Is the jury likely to see that? Yeah. Yes. And what about overly talking? I think we're the time we're supposed to take over, Your Honor. All right. We'll, we'll let, let you finish this line of questioning. Go ahead. He loves to interrupt. Yes. Okay. How about irrelevant? Irrelevant in the sense that you'll ask him a question and his answer will be unresponsive. His answer will be about something tangential to whatever the question is. I mean, that's pretty great. I wish somebody would get up and say that about almost everybody that testifies for me. So you can expect them to... Maybe be a little evasive. You ask one question, they give you a different answer because of, you know, just how they are. <laughs> how about indirect answers? Um, indirect meaning he has to go to China to get across the street? Yeah. He, he may do that, yes. Is that a frontal low problem? Yes. Are all these frontal low problems? Yes. What about digression? What is digression? Are, are they likely to see that? Uh, the, the colloquial is, uh, I digress, meaning we're discussing a particular topic and suddenly I'm talking about something else. Okay. All right. Uh, confabulation. First of all, define for the jury confabulation. No, we'd like to see that. Well, uh, some people call that honest lying, okay. meaning you're not telling the truth, but you really believe you are. Uh, and like All right. So that one was a bridge too far for me, even as a plaintiff's lawyer. I'm going to play it back for you one more time, and let's just highlight what he said we might hear from Terry Sanderson tomorrow. Honest lying. Define for the jury confabulation. And I'd like to see that. Well, uh, some people call that honest lying. 
meaning you're not telling the truth, but you really believe you are. Uh, Yikes. I think I would have had him leave that one out. Because if a juror holds on to that, honest lying, he thinks he's telling the truth, but he's not. He heard Mr. Ramon describe it, but he doesn't remember how it happened. Gwyneth Paltrow was there and remembers exactly how it happened. So now Terry Sanderson might honestly lie and not mean to. And that's confabulation. That's tough. That's really, really tough. And I can see that with Terry. You could very well see that with Terry, yes. It's not a frontal lobe problem. It, it's a frontal lobe problem. It's not bad. It's We're just going to keep going. But what, the judge has made a ruling. So somebody keeps, or he keeps interrupting with the time because they want equal time to cross, which judges usually don't give, but, and they definitely didn't take it because James was the one doing the cross and his are pretty pointed and pretty good. You get in and you get out with experts. Um, but he is doing this to rattle them, to try to shorten the testimony is no doubt in my mind. He is doing this to try to shorten the testimony not because they have a really long cross. We ended up finishing early today, yet he made the plaintiffs rush through one of their most important experts that they said. So it was a tactic, and unfortunately it worked. If I was the plaintiff's lawyer, I would have been like, the testimony is going to take as long as it takes. The problem is you're paying this guy probably $5,000 a day to sit there and testify. So if the defense wants to be jerks and make it go all the way to the end of the day, and he's got to come back the next day, that's another 5000 bucks. So it's kind of gamesmanship and behind the curtain a little bit on how these civil trials work. And, and you'll get equal time. Combative. I don't know in this environment he'll be openly combative. I think he has enough self-regulation that he'll respect the order of the court and the judge. I don't I don't think he'll argue with you or, or uh, uh, be inappropriate in his behavior. I think, again, I think what the jury will see is what appears to be a very normal man. Lack of insight. Yes. It's our frontal lobe problem. Yes. And, and that means with respect to Terry, inability to see what other people are seeing? I think in the end, his inability to take the perspective of others, we sometimes call that theory of mind to understand what someone is thinking and what they're feeling. Um, he has a difficult time doing that. He can do it for brief periods, and then he forgets it, and he goes right back to where he was. I really think that that's another tough one. I really think that's another tough one. I would not want somebody to say that about my client before they took the stand when the whole case hinges on whether or not they believe my client. It's tough. That's really tough. All right, then um, we get into cross-examination that starts with the same questions about the daughters. Um, Terry thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. People usually don't like that. If you hear somebody thinks they're the smartest guy in the room, what do you think? What's your first thought? Do you feel bad for that person? Do you want to help that person out? So I didn't love that categorization that came from the plaintiff's expert. He did a good job of explaining why some testing was great because it was a different part of the brain and that's why he tested off the charts. thought he did a good job of that, explaining that for the plaintiff, even on cross. Um, he did talk about how Terry was obsessed with the case. And somebody else said that as well. Yeah, Peggy. He's obsessing about the case. He'd be better off if he could learn not to obsess about the case. That, I thought, was a great point made by the defense that he was blamed, he basically blamed everything that happened the rest of his life on this case. And I will just tell you that sometimes can absolutely be true. It's incredibly sad to see as the lawyer. And he says somebody needs to sit him down and explain to him that 
not everything that every single thing that happens is because of this case. Now it's bad for the plaintiff's case here, but it's absolutely true. And it happens to people all the time. And you, when they have a traumatic event, it's really hard to differentiate what's because of this and what's because of somebody else. But that is something that happens very often. Um, and is believable to me, uh, for this case. All right. We're going to play, I think the last clip or maybe two. Uh, so if you guys haven't hit that like button, we have almost 6,000 people. We didn't hit 6,000 last night. So maybe today we'll cross the 6,000 people in the chat. Let's get 5,000 likes. Hit that like button if you guys haven't already. Hit it for the hair. Hit it for the hair. Team hair, me and him. I need to get mine curly. Maybe I'll dress up like him one day. All right, let's get to the next clip. Correct, and we were talking in that case about, for example, his his reports of problems with memory or new learning. So here was another bombshell. They talk about how this could all be affected from this, hitting his head, concussion, et cetera, et cetera. We talked about prior um, pre-existing conditions, but then the biggest bombshell of the day here, which I wasn't able to tweet about it because it happened later in the day, but you guys know I like to tweet when I find a good quote or a good bombshell. This was not good for the plaintiffs when they say, oh, did you know about the fall where he hit his head that was actually worse than the ski accident because he was out for 45 minutes? Best data suggests he's capable of doing those things. Yeah, and then uh, I believe uh, you were aware of Dr. Fong's evaluation, correct? Correct. And Dr. Fong reported um, that she had um, received a report from Mr. Sanderson that he'd fallen number of years after the accident, hit his head and was unconscious for 45 minutes. Do you recall that? Well, I was in court this morning when it came up. And as I said in court, I did not recall it. And I don't recall that we discussed it in my deposition. And so I, I want to know the chronology of when that event occurred uh, and uh, the time I slammed. So we could go to your deposition at age uh, 58. So I'll tell you, that's about as good of an answer as you can get when something really, really bad happens for the case that you're working on the side that you're working on. And you don't know about it and you don't know how to combat it. You just kind of give a vague answer, which I thought he did great. Now, James does a better job because he takes him and says, actually, we did talk about it in your definition and that in your deposition. And that would affect some of your testimony today. 59 is where we discussed it. So if you go to the bottom of page 58, um, you see where the question starts. You said, you're right. You're yeah, correct. Yes. You're I apologize. That. No, that's and fine. Hey, so, and, and I like nothing better in someone, an educated person, a person of some prominence that has no problem admitting that they are wrong and apologizing. I just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know what happened. I don't know. Maybe when this guy walked in the room with his hair, he just mesmerized me because I just thought he was great. I thought he was so believable. He didn't argue. He didn't fight. He corrected respectfully and correctly corrected lawyers multiple times, both lawyers, including his own lawyer, but when he when he when they pointed out to him in his depot, he didn't say, Where in my depot? Oh, sorry, I don't know how to read it. He had his depot there. He wasn't like, oh, where? No, that's not what I meant. There's some qualification or clarification of it later. It's just the truth. He's like, you know what? You're right. We did talk about it. That's my apology. I love when somebody can admit they're wrong, because we're all gonna be wrong at certain points. You'd read that this report had been made, but you had not received a uh, a report about that, correct? Correct. He didn't tell me about it, and I didn't see any medical records reflecting it. Right, and you thought that if it's that severe, if it's out for 45 minutes, that there should probably be a medical record, correct? Correct, and we'd have to consider the possible contribution of that event to his problems. Again, the chronology, I still don't know when he's... Did you hear that? Because that's exactly what the defense wanted to hear, and that's the truth, 
And this man spits the truth. I'll back it up so we can listen to it one more time. So that severe, if he's out for 45 minutes, that there should probably be a medical record, correct? Correct. And, and we'd have to consider the possible contribution of that event to his problems. Again, the chronology, I still... So the possible contribution. How did that fall, hitting the head, out for 45 minutes, contribute to his long-lasting brain injuries and um, behavioral issues? How did that affect it? How did it contribute? How can we weigh what happened in the accident? What did the accident actually cause? That's one of the elements is causation. Duty breach causation damages. The plaintiff has the burden to prove this element by the greater weight of the evidence. What did this ski crash cause? Now, if Gwyneth Paltrow caused it, if she didn't cause it, then it's over. We don't even have to, if she wasn't, if she didn't breach her duty, meaning cause the accident, then it's over. But if she did cause the crash, what injuries did it actually cause? I don't know when he saw Dr. Fong versus when he said he had that accident. Yeah, I, I can prove to you that it was Dr. at the time of Dr. Fong's deposition, he had re reported it to her. And that was a few years at, ago. But he reported it to her as occurring before the it was after, accident? After the accident. After the you skiing accident. Yeah. yeah, so that would be after the skiing accident. This sounds like a Laurel and Hardy movie here. <laughs> but after the skiing accident, but before he saw me. That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's important information. Yeah. I, I don't. I really don't know anything about it. And he did not tell you about it. Correct. Right. Um, Oof. That's like a dream as the defense cross-examining this witness. And again, the witness handled it as good as you could have. He's not going to lie. He didn't know about it. And it could affect his testimony. And guess what? It's not his fault. Plaintiff didn't tell him. Plaintiff's counsel didn't provide him the records. That's our job. It's plaintiff's counsel and as the plaintiff to give him everything we got so he can give us an opinion, especially a guy like this that's going to be thorough. Now, in fairness, it can be very expensive and sometimes that can affect it. But then he goes on and he says he still thinks the cause of his issues are unclear. Aging is a possibility of the cause of these damages. He thought every problem he had had to be attributed to this accident. Again, he said that. A lot of issues are causing his own mind. And then he gave more good evidence for the defense. We have all been skied into at some time. She did not do this on purpose. It was an accident. Nobody ever said she did this on purpose. Now, this makes a jury a lot less likely to want to hammer somebody when they think, oh, it's just an innocent mistake that could have happened to anybody. That's why in opening he said, distracted skiers cause crashes. Don't be distracted. The same thing like, if you're just saying like, oh, it was an accident, there was a car accident. But it's another thing if the person was looking down at their phone texting because they chose to do that and didn't care about the safety of anybody else on the road. They were in a rush, so they were speeding. They ran that red light because they their time and their world is more valuable than anybody else. That makes a jury understand how negligence, even though they didn't hit that person or hurt that person on purpose, they put their own desires, their own time themselves above the safety and well-being of every other person on the road, including people sitting on the jury. They could have been on the road that day too. So making them understand that is really important, but making it feel like, oh, no big deal. It happens to everybody. Everybody gets run into on ski slopes. Makes it a little bit less negative on Gwyneth Paltrow. 90% of brain injuries usually do resolve based on patient report. On redirect, here we go. I had a bunch of questions like this. Why isn't he in the courtroom? On redirect, basically, they say that this doctor, 
advised them and advised Terry it'd be better off if he was not in the courtroom because he does not take criticism of himself well. What do you think about that? That's a negative to me. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it, but you can't take criticism of yourself well. Like, we all have problems. We all have people that don't like us. We all are going to get criticized, especially if we have a brain injury and we realize we have that brain injury, but you can't handle hearing the negative things a lawyer. Like, every one of my clients gets pissed when the defense lawyer gets up and cross-examines witnesses, cross-examines their wife or their kids or their doctor or themselves. That does not make me feel real great about how he's going to do on cross. If he can't even sit in here and listen to some negative testimony, I would be nervous for him taking the stand. But that's why he's not in the courtroom. Then we hear about the fact that he had an injury when he was 10 years old because the plaintiff's counsel gets up and say, oh, well, that second injury could have been much worse and he was out for 45 minutes because of the first injury, right? And they're like, oh yeah, once you injure once, and we've heard about this, and he talked about, we don't have a lot of testing besides athletes that get like concussion over concussion over concussion. Look at Tua Tonga-Vailoa. It was worse every time, it seemed. So he's like, oh yeah, that's true. The second one probably was worse because of that first ski crash. Well, but wait, on recross, they come back and like, well, didn't he have a concussion when he was like 10 years old? So that was actually the first one, which made the ski crash one worse. So it wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow's fault. She didn't cause all these serious injuries. It was the first one. This was just an exacerbation. And then the, the third one exacerbated the second one. So it's really getting confusing. And that's beneficial for the defense. Then there was this the admission of this table. We can talk about it if you guys have any questions. But then we hear the witnesses that are going to come and testify. They're not even trying to hide the fact that they are putting Mr. Sanderson on the stand at four o'clock tomorrow, the, the lawyer said, meaning they're going to have him testify till the end of the day on Thursday. And they said they're going to have him come back and finish on Friday. Take a break in between. Make sure he's okay. Make sure they can prepare how they want to finish, depending on how his testimony goes. They're running this by the book. You start out with somebody that can explain what happened in the accident. You talk about how it affected your client. You get into the medicine and the damages. Then you usually you save your client for the end or near the end because the jury's going to want to hear what they say at that point and they can win the case for you right there. So Sanderson is going to go there. And then on Friday, they plan on calling Gwyneth Paltrow, Iron Man's wife, to the stand. The Coldplay guy's wife to the stand on Friday. So the next two days, we're going to hear from Sanderson. We're going to hear from Gwyneth Paltrow. So it is going to be really, really interesting. Then there was this late uh, motion, and I hear I got some messages like, why are plaintiffs violating the rules and filing these late motions? Yeah, right. The defense is objecting to doctors that they knew about for three years and never filed any objections or trying to limit their testimony. That should have been done 45 days ago as well. And as the judge said, this stuff happens in trial. We pull the anchor up, the boat's out, stuff's going to happen. We got to deal with it. And that's what they're doing now. They're dealing with the issues that pop up at trial. Yeah, ex-wife, whatever. Former wife of Coldplay, former wife of Iron Man. All right. Let's get, no, 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 I didn't mean, of course. Of course, nobody, I can't say anything without getting it, okay? No offense, she's more than someone's wife. Of course she is. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant reasons why she was famous, acting, 
I know she does some scented candles and things like that now. She is much more than somebody's wife. I did not mean it like that, but I know you can't get away with anything. Can't get away with anything on the internet. I appreciate you pointing that out so I could clarify it now and not have somebody that was not a, a lovable correction like I know you were um, bring it back at me. So thank you. Okay. All right. Paltrow is not in court tomorrow. She's going to be in court. She's not going to testify till Friday. Sanderson tomorrow, Paltrow Friday. All right, let's get to some of these questions. If you guys have questions, get them in now. We're going to do some Q&A now. Hit that like button if you haven't already. Are we at 5,000 likes yet? You guys let me know in the chat. Sherry, being a brittle type 1 diabetes, my go-to answer for any health issues is I'm fine, or my go-to answer, sadly, even with health professionals. I know. It's a very natural response. Jay, hey, Pete. Glad to see you covering this case. I was skeptical about it, but you knew it would be drama, right? Yes, I did. I'm glad you're here. Where are you leaning? I know when you get in and you dig in on a spot, you stay there. Where are you leaning, Jay? Uh, Mehdi, what do his personal relationships have to do with this trial and why are they bringing it up? Like his relationship with one of his daughters. They love to make him look bad. They treat him like a criminal defendant. Try to get the generally bad guy rule. But there is some relevance to this, right? If he is saying his relationships changed because of this, if he got more angry now and has a shorter fuse because of this, that makes it relevant if one of his daughters say, no, 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 no. He's always been bad at relationships. He's always been angry. He's always had a short fuse. He's always been controlling. And that's relevant because it didn't just come from this. Rebel Duck. Hey, Peter. Chris Martin called looking for his Coldplay guy moniker. Great content as usual. Thank you. Just one. Uh, thoughts on the judge. He might be my favorite judge so far. Quick to rule. Invite sidebars to prevent uh, ringing the bell. Doesn't appear to favor any side. I love him too. He looks at exhibits himself. He takes it all in, analyzes it, makes the decision. I really love him as well too. And he's not standing for any of the bickering. He just is kind of like, let's just deal with it, guys. Uh, Team YouTube. I always thought that the eggshell defense is not a valid defense. Is that not correct? It's not a defense. It's a plaintiff's argument. And it's absolutely legitimate. I, I shouldn't say it. I don't know about every jurisdiction. In our jurisdiction, absolutely relevant. I mean, um, valid. And in this jurisdiction as well. Medi, Gwyneth is at least half his size. So in what reality does he have all the extreme injuries while she basically brushed it off and walked away? It's not rocket science. He's full of it. Well, or he has all these pre-existing injuries, right? And they contribute to it. And I will say, the more I thought about this, if she's skiing really fast and does take him out and he does barrel into the snow with her on top of him, I think you could break some ribs and get a concussion from that. Medi, Peter, perm hair for 250K subscribers. I don't think I can do that. I can't do that to you guys. I already live on the internet forever, dressing up like Jack Sparrow, which people call me a stand for, and I'm not even that big of a Johnny Depp fan. Um, I thought the case was interesting, and I thought he should have won, but it's just funny what happened. I don't know if I can perm my hair. Stephanie, but if your client is going to act in odd ways when giving testimony, maybe even combative, don't you want a neuropsych to say, he's here's what to expect versus is being a train wreck unexpectedly. Well, first off, you can argue that without the neuropsych saying that. Um, I, I agree with you. I just don't know if I'd want it to happen before. I may have saved that testimony until after to see if my client actually did honestly lie and get combative on the stand. But I get what you're saying. Heidi, I guess I'm just wondering why Gwyneth would be at fault. It was unintentional and could happen to anyone. When is, it, when is an accident not just an accident? Well, here's the issue. 
An accident is not just an accident if you did not use reasonable care. Now, if the snow was coming down and there was a, a snowball that came down the hill and hit her and knocked her over and she went into him and she could have literally done nothing to avoid it, then sure, there's no fault. But when she wasn't paying, if, if allegedly she wasn't paying attention or if Terry Sanderson wasn't paying attention and plowed into somebody in front of him, we can't have that on the ski slopes. Just like we can't have drivers being distracted and not paying attention on the road. Just like we can't have doctors who don't pay attention when they're doing surgery. Accidents and unintentional acts can cause people life-changing injuries and problems. And so we have to act reasonably prudent and safe like a reasonable person would in like circumstances. Nicole, that's very odd not being in the courtroom. I know, but it seems like everybody agreed. And question, are they positing that all of his brain injury is from the accident? It seems like that, but I don't know. My dad had an aneurysm burst with a serious brain bleed at 67 and his recovery 22 years later is better than this gentleman's. Interesting. Azam, I knew you were going to come with this, Azam. Use that hairdo for 250K, Peter. I knew it. I knew you were going to come come with that. Uh, Abby, can honest lying excuse perjury due to a TBI? Probably. He's not intentionally doing this. There is a mens rea to perjury. Caitlin, does Paltrow's demeanor impact the verdict jury? I think it does. It's impacting how you all see her. Hey, we crossed 6,000 in the chat. Awesome. Milestones are fun, even if it's a random one that doesn't really matter, but it's fun for me. Um, and it's fun for all you guys to get more people to chat with. I think her demeanor matters. What do you guys think? We would tell all of our clients that it does. Yes. Uh, Lauren Hertz. Peter, I struggle understanding your attorney defense of relevance. Example, in JD trial, you said AH's history of DV wasn't relevant. So how is this medical history? Her history of DV was not relevant. So how is this medical history? So very different. I want to make sure we're getting this right. Do you mean her history? So you mean her history of domestic violence against others, like as a perpetrator of domestic violence, right? That is like other bad acts evidence, propensity, allegations that have not been proven. Here, we are talking about Terry Sanderson's own words telling a doctor he has these problems. Terry Sanderson's prior medical issues from medical records, right? Very different than somebody in the past saying that Amber Heard did something that was never proven and she never admitted to. If she would have said, I've beaten multiple partners. They would have been able to use that against her. That's her words. Maybe, maybe not, because it still might have gone to propensity and 404 and 403, you know, uh, more prejudicial than probative. But this is not propensity evidence. This does not make him more or less likely to commit some kind of act. This is him saying, this didn't exist before, and there are medical records that say it did, or even testimony that says it did to impeach him. She also, I don't believe, ever said, I mean, I know it ended up coming in um, for a bunch of different reasons, but and the trial was a while ago. I don't think she ever said, I've never been accused of doing anything to anybody in the past physically. I don't think she ever said that. Brooklyn Basement. Brooklyn Basement. Uh, would you have taken his case and why? I don't know. I would have had to talk to him. I say this all the time. When I sit down with a client, that's what determines whether or not I'm going to take a case. If I believe them. If I thought he was just trying to... Uh, go for a money grab or get 15 minutes of fame. Absolutely not. If I thought he was really hurt and she really did it, then yes, I would take the case. Kim D, 
If he ran into her, wouldn't she have injuries? He was significantly bigger. Also, her lawyers are more off-putting than Poot. By the way, I love this judge. So I think it just depends on how they collided, right? Like if they just, if they were skiing like this, these are their legs. If they were skiing like this and he went like this, hurt her knee, and then he went tumbling down the hill after skiing into her, he could have broken his ribs, gotten a concussion, and she hurt her knee. So I don't know. I just think there's a lot of factors here. Azam, today is my first day of Ramadan, the fasting month. School is off until the weekend. I can join the nightly recap these next two days. Yay, that's awesome. Um, Ennis Cantor, I remember, had to, was going through this while playing in the NBA. And they were talking about how exhausted he was and just how wild it is. So that's cool. Thanks for sharing that, Azam. John O'Rourke, is it weird that Sanderson heard a scream before the accident? Doesn't that mean GP was paying attention? I don't know. Or she wasn't paying attention. All of a sudden, she looked and screamed at the last minute. I don't know. Tina, I'm leaning towards being Peter Tragos, the lawyer you know this Halloween. Hair, golf shirt, water, uh, gentle belches, <laughs> the mic and all. Respectfully, Peter, that's all. Send me a picture if you do. That would be hilarious. Uh, Maureen Griffin, you should be doing the clothes for the plaintiff. I do do the closing arguments for, pla for the plaintiff, just not this plaintiff. Uh, Molly, what are the rules with leading questions when the plaintiff calls the defendant? Are there risks? So they're allowed to treat her as a hostile witness, most likely, depending on how she acts. They'll be given some leeway with leading questions, especially if she's dancing. Tammy, the plaintiff's case usually tips the scale for me to the plaintiff's side. So far, uh, tipping the scale to GP. Not a great sign for the plaintiff. Not what a plaintiff's lawyer wants to hear in that case. Abby, so for Gwen to be found guilty, not guilty, but liable, they have to prove she was distracted and maybe negligent. Am I correct? I'm not hearing much of that proof, are you? So we heard from Mr. Ramon, and maybe they're going to try to get some of that out from Gwyneth, like you were watching your kids ski, right? You had nine people. You were distracted. You were talking to people. You were doing this, doing that. So maybe they'll try to get some of it out from her, but that's really going to depend on if you believe Mr. Ramon and, more importantly, Mr. Sanderson. And if Mr. Sanderson says, I was skiing forward and I absolutely did not run into anybody else. What she was doing behind me, I'm not sure, but I for sure did not run into anybody else. And I think the evidence by the first doctor today about how if he would have run into her, his injuries would have looked different. If you believe that, I think that's helpful evidence to prove that as well. Jesse Sue, how many cases have you personally turned away because you couldn't get behind what the party was claiming? Quite a few. I would say more than... I don't know. This is kind of hard depending on what you, this could be a lot of definitions. I mean, this could literally be hundreds if you're just saying I couldn't get behind them. But if I thought people were lying and just going after mon money, I would say maybe two or 3% of my cases. So two or three out of every hundred that I sign, we turn away because we think people are either lying, money hungry, just trying to go after plaintiffs. I mean, sorry, just try trying to go after people to try to get some money. Maybe might even be 5%, might even be 5%, but we reject cases for all sorts of different reasons. Not, not just because we think a client's lying or something like that. Stephanie Coker, are you going to do a sports corner? So somebody said sports court, which is interesting because I've actually been looking into putting a sports court to play some pickleball in my backyard. Cause I'm really into pickleball these days. Um, I think we may, if people are interested, Lita, thank you for this. I continue to enjoy your nightly recaps Thank your family from the lawyer, you know, crew. Thank you, Lita. I will thank my family who I'm about to get to because we're wrapping up here. I appreciate everybody joining me. 
Um, I appreciate everybody who's come in and, and watched this trial. Let me know what you think. I'm going to continue to follow it. I find it very interesting. I love seeing the comments. I go back and look at them later. I look at the live chat. I look at the comments for anybody in the rewatch crew of what you think of these experts and these lawyers and the witnesses and whether or not things are getting proven to you. And if you need more, this helps me so much. This is like crowdsourcing. You guys are valuable and diverse with different backgrounds, different thoughts, different feelings. Um, and you know, some people can be a little harsher than others. Some people can be a little more gentle, but that's how jurors could be too. So I find it so important and enlightening, and I'm so very thankful for all of you and what you add to this chat in this community. Mary Malarkey had no opinion on GP, but demeanor is off-putting. So it matters. I mean, I really think the, um, the demeanor is important, but I appreciate you all until next time. I'll see you tomorrow night. Oh, I actually recorded a video on, what the heck was it on? Co no, it wasn't on Koberger. It was on Murdoch about Stephen Smith. We heard from Stephen Smith's mom, the lawyers representing him, what's going on in that case and what Buster Murdoch had to say and my reaction to it. So make sure you check that out tomorrow morning. I think I'm going to play it in the morning before the Paltrow uh, trial even starts. And then Pete is going to continue to update you on the Aiden Fucci sentencing. So that's it. Yeah, John O'Rourke, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm about to upgrade paddles. Lauren, Peter, remind me what you officially named us. I didn't. Uh, the chat you know, one potential jurors is what I've always called the chat. So we'll go with some combination of that. The, the chat you know um, and potential jurors. All right. I love you all. I'm out of here. To the outro. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lawyer You Know podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, here's what to do next. Give it a share, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and make sure you subscribe to the show in the listening app of your choice. Follow me on all social media platforms at Tragos Law, and join the Lawyer You Know YouTube channel and community where you can ask me questions live on all of these cases. If you've got an idea for a specific topic or you have a personal legal question on an injury case, whether it's a car accident, trip and fall, wrongful death, or catastrophic injury case, please email me at lawyeryouknow at gmail.com. All of these links I just mentioned are included in the show notes section of this episode. So until next time, I'm Peter Trigger.